You're now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Tommy, and today I have on Andrew Kilbride and Matthew Lewis, who are the CEO and CTO of testmachine.ai, which is an AI blockchain security platform and a Delphi Ventures investment. Matt and Andrew, we were just talking about how you guys started Test Machine well before the AI craze. When when did you guys conceptualize Test Machine? I think we, we first came up with the idea in fall of 2021. And then we really started working on building out the platform and raising money around the summer of 2022. And then we finally closed our seed round at the end of 2022. And uh, now here we are. Thanks to Delphi and Decasonic and Everett Row Partners. Uh, but yeah, we were at, Matt and I were working on another project. This is Matt and I's fourth startup together. And so we've worked together on different projects over a long period of time. And I pulled Matt into a project to ask for his help. And we were in Chicago and we were with Hibbert Road and Decasonic. And for about two days, every meeting that we sat in on, they talked about code security and all the hacks that were happening in, in DeFi and crypto. And, and um, so later on that night, after the second day, Matt said, I think blockchain is a perfect use case for some of the work that I've been doing in artificial intelligence and more specifically the last five or six years in, in machine learning, reinforcement learning. And we put a quick pitch together, which wasn't hard because we relied mostly on Matt's expertise and, and deep knowledge of his space. And we pitched that. And like Matt said, then we went out and raised capital and stood the company up. And here we are. So let's let's dive into that a bit. Matt, we'll start with you and then we'll go to Andrew. But when I first met you, I was a little scared. I'm like, is this guy going to hack me? Or he's got some crazy background stories. Walk us through like some examples of your past life before Test Machine, what you helped to build and the knowledge and expertise that you've built up throughout your career. Sure. So my background is actually in theoretical astrophysics, which is maybe the least practical thing you can go get a degree in. And I studied I studied string theory in, in cosmology in the context of string theory. And then after grad school, I worked for General Dynamics Advanced Information Systems, where I worked on projects related to what what's called electronic warfare. So I used machine learning models to basically secure our communication systems and our radar systems, and also learn how to exploit foreign communication systems. And I did that for about eight years and then jumped to a smaller company called Michigan Aerospace Corporation, which is based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And the the primary product that that Michigan Aerospace worked on is high-powered atmospheric LIDAR systems. So what we would do is we would fire a, an ultraviolet laser up into space and scan it around and then look at all the photons that bounced back off the atmosphere, off of the individual O2 and N2 atoms. And then we would use sort of conventional physics, but also some machine learning to, to take all of that information and uh, learn about atmospheric weather systems all the way up to space. So things like wind temperature, density, pressure, um, that sort of stuff. Also, as CTO of Michigan Aerospace Corporation, I branched out into other areas. So I applied machine learning to the biomedical domains. So we built these devices that would help predict hypovolemic shock by looking at the, the structure of pressure waves in the blood. And I also built systems that would that used uh, convolutional neural networks and drones to map out invasive species and coastal ecosystems in Michigan. And also... We used a similar technology to automatically identify animals and camera trap images for ecologists. We used machine learning on a number of fields, and we probably did 
15 or 20 different projects that use sort of cutting edge machine learning technology, but brought it to the scientists and the end users who are not necessarily comfortable with this technology. And this was five or six years ago. This was well before this current AI boom with the large language models and chat GPT and, and so forth. So it was, it, it was really cool to be able to use this, this sort of cutting edge mathematics, these cutting edge algorithms to, to make a real dent in, in, in something. So before I ask Andrew this, the same question, I'm scared to ask your views on aliens or how encrypted Telegram actually is, given your communications work. I don't know the best question to ask you here, but I'm assuming that you've probably seen some things that would make the normal person maybe question reality or... Yeah, no, you're not. Everything I know is about those things is probably something I shouldn't talk about. If I really want to write something to communicate in a secure way, I, I use a pencil and paper. That's a good call. So Andrew, you bring a level of operational experience to test machine that, that complements Matthew very well. You guys have worked together over a number of startups. Talk to me a bit about your role and, and how you've done this successfully in the past, right? Because this is the fourth run for you. Most founders don't make it out alive on their first startup. Yeah. My background is very similar to Matt. I, I was in consulting and sales. Matt and I met 15 years ago here in Harbor through friends, and that's where our relationship started. And just over the years, I would pull Matt in on different projects that I thought were interesting. And then, yeah, we did work on, this is our fourth startup together. Two of them were okay. One was a spectacular failure. And this one is off to a good start. So we're really excited about it. And I think the other thing too that helps Matt and I is that I have complete trust in what he does. It's amazing the, uh, the team that he has attracted to Test Machine. And I think from the moment that we started talking about this, every really hurdle so far, we've been able to knock down. And, but I think that level of trust is where, where most teams falter. And, and so I think that's where we have an advantage. Then from a technology standpoint, the exciting thing for me when we first started talking about this, this was a theoretical exercise. Matt has built and deployed similar models in different environments to different use cases. But when you think about code security, Matt could probably tell you a story about some of the work that he did with naval intelligence officers and all the information that comes at them on a daily, sorry, on an hourly and minute basis during an operation, similar maybe to a hedge fund trader or a blockchain developer. And having to sift through uh, all that data and keep it secure was something that, you know, just for us, the, the ideas have not stopped. We keep finding more use cases for this technology. And then lastly, I would just say when ChatGPT hit the stage earlier this year, it was pretty funny because I'm like, Matt, didn't you show me early versions of a large language models like two or three years ago? And I forget what the, it was like kittens and something else that we were messing around with images. But, but yeah, I think that, that base level of trust has enabled us to build a really cool team. And obviously the, the technology and the timing have been very good. So before we go into test machine, do you guys have any tips or lessons you can share with the rest of our founders or just the space on building that trust and finding that perfect teammate or partner to start a company with? Because you guys have done it four times. Most of the times, I think founders, like the biggest issue to a project is they end up fighting and leaving or you, know, you can't really build that trust. What, what is the secret there? Oh, I think it, we just, we like each other. I think that helps. I mean, we, we're also in, we're also in similar spaces. We both have three kids. We both live in Ann Arbor. So there's, 
a lot of common ground there that I think that helps. And I think the other thing that's nice is that we absolutely complement each other. If you look at the Venn diagram of my skill set and Andrew's skill set, it, it looks like wheels on a bus. There's zero overlap. So I, I think in that sense, we're not fudding heads too much. We're not. I don't really have like crazy opinions about selling things. And in that, I, mean, I don't want to speak for Andrew, but I, I think he has very few opinions about latent vector spaces. So... Um, <laughs> That's good. No, find someone that's your, find the perfect Venn diagram where there's not much overlap. That's right. You know, the Shel Silverstein, the missing piece book. And I also think it starts with the idea. If founders are getting together to make money, that it's a fool's errand, I think. It's so hard. And there's so many things that you have to get right for a startup to be successful. I think if you start with, I want to make money, you should just quit. It's really got to start from a foundational level. There's a use case that you and your team believe you can solve. I think that is what I would tell any founder of any company. If there's a big problem that you think you can solve, that's a good place to start. And then as Matt said, we're really lucky because we have so much in common outside of work that helps, I think, the trust. But yeah, I would say if you're starting a company today, by the way, there's lots of problems that need to be solved. If you're in the United States, if you happen to be here, it's the greatest place on earth to start a company especially a software company. I think we're the best in the world at it. We know we're the best in the world at artificial intelligence software and we'll continue to be. But for founders, I think you start with that big problem, find a use case. And what we did really early on, luckily with Delphi, with Decasonic, with, and initially with Hibbert Road Partners, is we immediately found people that were going to help us solve that problem and will be customers. Outside of the Trusting someone and finding someone that you love to work with, find a big problem to solve. And I guess I could think of one more thing, like you have to be able to be together all the time and you have to be able to communicate. And so if there's any red flags that pop up with you and someone that you work with and you're founding a company, you need to address those right away. And if you can't solve them, you're going to have a really tough time spending 24 hours a day, seven days a week, no vacations together. Yeah. Get the problem solved. And I think the same thing goes for building out the rest of the team. Fortunately, I've worked in this space in Ann Arbor for 20 years now. And so I, I had a lot of contacts and a lot of the folks I worked with at previous companies, I was able to bring onto the team and I knew that we worked well together. I knew what their skill set was, and then they were able to reach out to additional people. And so we've been able to build this core team that is really effective at communicating. Everybody knows what jobs need to get done and they, and they go after it and they, they understand what's at stake. At a, at a startup, you have to, it's very different than working for a company like General Dynamics, which has 60,000 employees. And there would be folks there who'd work, who'd work there for 35 years and nobody knew exactly what they did. And so that's John, he works in the, he lives in the closet over there. I don't, he does something. He gets not a paycheck every week. He gets yeah. a paycheck every week, but there's none of that can exist at, at a startup. There's just too much to do and, and stakes are too high. Oh, it's good. It, it's a good foundation for you guys. So let's dive a bit into Test Machine, and then we'll zoom back out to AI. You guys are in one of, I guess it is the most hyped space right now. You started years prior, so you started well before that hype. And you're targeting something that's pretty much unsolved in crypto, right? Every couple of weeks, every couple of months, we see a massive hack, right? We just saw the Curve hack recently. We saw Euler before that. Bridge hacks, which are predominantly most of the hacks. The DAO hack is an Ethereum's history as the defining moment. So why focus so specifically on, on hacks and auditing and making sure code is battle-tested, right? Because a lot of people in AI, they go out to solve 
the biggest problems. They want to raise billions of dollars to have the most hardware, to have the best LLMs. Why focus on a narrow, specific niche within AI? I, I would say, I think we, you know, we fundamentally believe that blockchain technology is the future. It's, there's so many industries that are going to be transitioning over to blockchain. And I think one of the big problems uh, with people adopting it, other than most people don't understand exactly what it is, is that it's so vulnerable to these attacks, especially in the DeFi space. In 2022 alone, $3.9 billion were stolen from smart contracts. And that's a lot of money. That's a lot of real money. That's a lot of money that was people's life saving. That was companies go out of business because they've lost this much money. So I think in order to get blockchain adopted on a global scale, we need to be sure that these so-called smart contracts are in fact smart. And I think the, one of the fundamental premises of, of Test Machine is that humans uh, are not up to the job. Humans cannot scale as necessary to find all of these vulnerabilities in these smart contracts. There's something like 6 billion lines of code on all the Ethereum mainnet right now. And there's hundreds of developers who are capable of auditing these contracts at the level to which they need to be audited. I think the only way to approach the problem is to use artificial intelligence, to use machine learning, to use you know conventional programming techniques to automate as much of, of this security problem as you can. Why do you think that we haven't had any step function improvements in the audit space, right? Like you guys have numerous competitors. They're very well funded and I don't want to knock them, right? Like crypto is extremely complex. Code is ever changing. It's out there in the wild. There's a lot of money at stake, but I feel like we haven't had a serious improvement in the level of auditing or code review in the last couple of years. And obviously I'm not the one doing it, so I wouldn't really know, but I could see the hacks we've had. Why do you think we just haven't seen a material improvement? Yeah, I think there's a number of reasons. I think one, this, even the space is still young. Solidity, which is the, the code, Solidity and Viper, which are you know, languages that, that power the Ethereum blockchain, have only been around for you know years. And so like, if you're a senior developer on Solidity, you're, you maybe have four or five years of experience. And then if you couple that with the rapidly increasing complexity of the smart contracts, few years ago, a smart contract, you, you deploy a smart contract with 150 lines of code. It's like an ERC-20 or something like this. And now we have these DeFi applications that the ones that we're looking at have 30, 40 contracts, and they're bringing in four or 500 additional libraries. And so even though there, are, there have been improvements in the technology, there's zero knowledge systems, there's contract fuzzing, there's these static code analyzers like Slither and Mithril and so forth. And I think they all have improved the baseline of the security. But I think the complexity of the contracts is far outrunning the ability for these standard tools to um, come up with solutions. And people are working on AI solutions to this problem, but they're just not quite there yet. That's where Test Machine comes in. So yeah, that's that's a great parlay into Test Machine. I guess walk us through the Test Machine difference, right? Like I'm a smart contract engineer or founder. I create a new DeFi project. I go out, I want to get this audited. I could take the normal kind of consulting approach. I think it's long timelines, potentially incomplete work. What's the difference between working with the old way versus Test Machine? Yeah. So one of the first things we decided when we were building Test Machine is that we wanted to move the sort of auditing or, or code analysis process closer to the developer. So the, the traditional approach for the last five years is that you write a smart contract, and then at the end of that process, you ship it off to a consulting firm, uh, and they do an in-depth audit, and they tell you what's wrong with it, and you fix it, and then you send it back to them. As I mentioned, there's so few competent Solidity developers that this takes a long time. You can wait in line for six months. You're going to pay $50,000 or $100,000, depending on the project. 
and this is just not this is different than like a, a typical web 2 scenario where you have this continuous integration continuous testing continuous deployment you just simply can't do that today with your web 3 project because of the need the critical need for the smart contract audits especially in the defi space where you're putting possibly hundreds of millions of dollars of assets into these contracts so we wanted to move the auditing process or the code security process closer to the developer. So with Test Machine, as soon as you check your code into GitHub, uh, the Test Machine algorithms go grab your smart contracts. We analyze it. We use, we use uh, a range of available open source software. We do static code analysis. And then we run it through our proprietary machine learning algorithms and our proprietary uh, reinforcement learning algorithms. And we are able to give you a full security scan of the contract and it takes minutes and not days or months to get that. And so that's like the fundamental shift in 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 how and how you did the development. And that's going to be important across a number of industries. For example, gaming is really grabbing onto blockchain because you can buy and sell and lend different assets that are NFTs. So for example, if you want a particular avatar to have a particular look, you can you could buy that NFT. You can buy in-game assets that are NFTs that have accrue real value. The gaming companies need to be able to update these assets in real time. They need to be able to create new ones in real time. And if they have to, if every time they do that, they need to get a full audit, it's going to be very difficult. And it's just not, blockchain becomes much less useful to them than it could be if they have the auditing and the security built into the process. So I think that's one important thing that Test Machine is trying to do is make sure that we get this technology in the hands of the developers in real time. And it becomes part of their continuous integration, continuous deployment process. Just to play devil's advocate for for a second, Matt, wouldn't large consulting firms have been around for a while already have a lot of these, I'll call them automated tools in-house? Like, why aren't they, one, do they have them? And then two, why aren't they releasing them as like a SaaS model that any developer could use? Because it seems like it would be relatively easy for them to say, hey, look, we developed these, let's open the doors, SaaS revenue, you have a new code, you don't have to wait six months. Why aren't they, or, or, or can they just not do that? I think they could do that, and there are some definitely some companies who are doing that. I think there's not much of an incentive for them to do that. If there's a six month line at their door to get contracts audited on there, people are paying fifty, a hundred thousand dollars. Why would you change that business model? I think eventually they're going to have to change that business model because there's going to be disruption. AI and, and this sort of technology is going to disrupt this industry for sure. Uh, it's in part what we're trying to do. But right now, if you're a large consulting firm, A, you've got a lot of inertia. I've worked in large firms before, and innovation is hard to come by, especially when you have you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. It's hard to make the case to invest in some crazy technology that's going to lower your profit margins. I think that's probably the biggest, biggest hurdle right now. They're just not incentivized. Makes sense. So let's go into the fun stuff, the AI component here. Where, what is the secret sauce on the AI side for a test machine? Do you guys have your own proprietary model? Is there proprietary data? Is it the engineers building the model? Like, Where does the moat for test machine on the AI side come in from? Because there's been a lot of debate around if moats exist in AI, how you form that. And I think my personal view is that it's either a proprietary data to train the model, proprietary algorithms, or potentially specific business integrations with large enterprises, the sales cycle. What exactly is it for a test machine that sets it apart? Yeah, I'll give the I'll give the headline, and Matt can write the article. It is the engineering. I think refrigeration was a, a huge break breakthrough in the world. Coke did very well with refrigeration. I think large language models, artificial intelligence, are a complete breakthrough for 
for society. And I think it will be the applications that are built on top of large language models, on top of reinforcement learning models and machine learning models, where we will actually succeed. When you think about the number of problems that need to be solved, they can't all be solved with one set of data. That's not going to work. And I, so I think the advantage that Test Machine has, one, is that I think we're starting with one, a pretty broad use case, but it's also forcing us to get very small in solving a problem that is very widespread. And that, I'll let Matt give you the, the, all the details around this, but that allows us to build a platform and not just a tool for a smart contract. All the things that we can do in solving that problem for smart contract security allow us to build an entire platform that sits on top of large language models and large databases. So I, that's the headline I would... Yeah. And as, as far as if you think about the moat, I would say, I say we, we have a moat. I, I think all moats are temporary. They're going to evaporate over time as technology improves and these, the tools and the, and the technology becomes democratized and, and commoditized and, and people understand how to do it. 10 years ago, I was, I was writing my own neural networks from scratch, like my own backpropagation algorithms and so forth. I would never think about doing that today because there's so many lovely uh, frameworks out there. There's TensorFlow, there's PyTorch that, that allow you to do that. And so as these tools, as those sort of fundamental tools develop, it's going to become easier and easier for, for folks to implement bespoke methods like, like we are at Test Machine. So I, I think the core strength of Test Machine is in our proprietary algorithms that we're developing that essentially do penetration testing on these contracts. So if you're a human auditor, and you're looking through these contracts, you're looking for certain well-understood patterns. So for example, you know what a, re a re entrancy vulnerability looks like, that there are certain things you need to do to protect against those re entrancy vulnerabilities. And that, that would work in most cases. If there is re entrancy vulnerability, it's going to get flagged, it's going to get fixed. But there, there are certain cases where, for example, the, this Curve Finance hack that happened two weeks ago or so, that was a re entrancy vulnerability. But it's not one that a human auditor would have picked up because there were reentrancy locks in the code, in the Viper code that was exploited. The problem is there was a problem with the Viper compiler. There were three different versions of it that had uh, malfunctioning reentrancy locks, which some very clever hacker was understood existed and one was able to exploit and steal. What was it, sixty-one million dollars or something like this at the point? So, I think what you need is a fully automated approach to it that complements what a human auditor would do. And that's what we're building with Test Machine. My background for the last five, five, six years has been using machine learning techniques called reinforcement learning to solve a variety of problems. And so reinforcement learning really became famous six or seven years ago when Google's DeepMind used the core reinforcement learning algorithms to beat the world championship, world champion Go player. Go was famously, the, this is extremely complicated game that it just humbles chess. Chess is playing like tic-tac-toe compared to Go in terms of the combinatorical complexity of the game and just absolutely destroy the best Go players. And the, the core idea behind reinforcement learning is that you have an agent, which is really just a really, really big neural network, and it learns by interacting with the environment. So in the case of Go, it, it learns by just playing Go and seeing what happens. And you incentivize the agent to learn by providing a reward function that rewards it when it does something good and penalizes it when it does something bad. So in the case of learning how to play Go, if you win the game, you get plus one. If you lose the game, you get negative one. And so the, the reinforcement learning algorithms, which I won't go into the nitty-gritty details on there, but they're really good at taking this reward function, sparse as it may be, just win or lose, 
and figuring out what the best moves are in the game in order to maximize that reward function to win every time. And so it ends up playing very different than the human does, but it ends up playing much better than the human does. But the same algorithm can be used to learn how to play Pac-Man or learn how to play chess optimally or learn how to drive a car or over the pandemic, I use reinforcement learning algorithms to teach a bike how to ride on its own and stay upright. And the only reward function was, I want you to be vertical. The more vertical you are, the better your reward function. So after about an hour of pushing this bike along, it learned to start steering itself and kept itself upright. And that same algorithm learns how to play Qbert at world-class levels. And so what we're doing with Test Machine is using those core algorithms and learning how to penetrate smart contracts and thereby re reveal the underlying vulnerabilities. And there's a lot of there's a lot of art to doing this. You have to craft a reward function that is relevant to the problem space that incentivizes these agents to steal tokens from a contract. You have to model how you what it. So in, in the reinforcement learning problem, you have an action space, which is everything you can do. So if you're playing Pac-Man, you can go up, down, left, or right. That's your action space. In the case of a smart contract, your action space might be all of the, the functions on the smart contract you have access to that you could call as well as the arguments you can pass into those functions. So we've spent a lot of time learning train agents to exploit that action space and thereby crack these contracts. And then we can take that information and we can report it directly to the developer. So in the case of the, the, the curve finance hack, even though any developer looking at their code would not see a reentrancy vulnerability, if we ran it through test machine, we would discover the reentrancy vulnerability. Even though we've not provided any a priori information to our agents, they just learn because that's what they're designed to do. It would crack that contract, it would exploit the reentrancy, and then we could re report that. And even though we didn't know that there was a problem with the biker compiler, we would be able to find it. And we find it in a systematic way. The, these agents learn how to search this space in a very efficient way in order to crack these contracts. And so there's a lot that goes into building these, these agents. It's, it's there's, there's tons of so-called hyperparameters that you have to tune because these things are basically your huge neural networks. How many layers of these neural network, how many layers should this neural network have? How many neurons per layer? There's all sorts of design choices that you have to make there. And then also, how can we train these, these agents on one contract and then use what they learn to exploit different contracts so we don't have to keep retraining from starting to time. So this is a broadly called transfer learning, machine learning space. So like, how can we transfer what we learned from this instance into this instance? And then also, how can we take this core technology and bring in other pieces of machine learning? So for example, large language models, can we use those to help us in some way? Large language models are not yet up to speed. They're not up to the, not capable of doing a full security audit. They can give you some insight, but they're not going to be able to find these very subtle hacks that, that have been happening in the last you know couple of months. This is exactly what I wanted to get into. I'm so glad that you're you're covering it in this much detail. I have a bunch of questions. The large language models that we're all seeing, like ChatGPT, Google's Bard, things like that. When I spoke to Stephen Wolfram about them on our last podcast, he had one of the best descriptions of neural networks, right? The idea that we're taking all of the text and data on the internet, we're fine-tuning parameters, billions of numbers between zero and one, and eventually it helps us to continue our sentences. And we're not, that language isn't that hard, so it gives us like massive intelligence. Eventually, those models will grow in size. They'll get to hundreds of billions, trillions of parameters, they'll get smarter and smarter, but they're going to generalize over the entire internet's worth of data. So is that where the difference is with test machines model and that you're not generalizing and you're keeping it now? Or is, is there a 
trade-off there, or am I just missing? A... No, there is a trade-off. Certainly, we are the you know, these large language models are trending towards something like artificial general intelligence, where they can answer any question you throw at it, and they they can speculate, they can be, they can mock up create creative thoughts. But really, they are just very large, extremely sophisticated conditional probability distributions. Given these four words, what's the next word I should put after this such that I maximize some objective function? That's all it's doing. It does it very well. It does it remarkably well. It's, you've played around with it. It's amazing, right? What Test Machine is doing is staying very focused on one particular problem, and that's smart contract security. So they get really good at one thing, at, at just breaking smart. And it is definitely complementary to what the large language models are providing. Large language models can provide insight and we're actually using large language models to take the results of what Test Machine finds and translate it into actionable information for the developer. But there's no way that these large language models right now can find something as subtle as this. They would never find the, this curve finance hack, for example, because it would go through the code and, it, and it, it can do some introspection. It can look at the code and understand the intent of each function in, in the contract, but it would see those re-entrancing locks there and it would be like, hey, that's cool. It wouldn't flat anything. So you actually have to try to break the contract. And I think that's one of the crucial distinctions between what our technology is doing, this sort of general large language model approach to it. So they're complementary, but yeah, they should be used together, but you, you can't get away without like actually trying to penetrate the contract and break it. I see. I, I doubt these new developers want to put their, their brand new code in a public model either, C-wise. But, right. Uh, right. So a couple, like, a couple more devil advocate, advocates questions for you guys. Hallucinations are like a common issue with AI models, right? The, the idea that these models just make things up, right? There's a popular news article that came out a couple of weeks ago where these lawyers are going to get like disbarred for making up cases that never happened. And there's the Google Palm model where they had real doctors input answers to make sure that it can get to an expert level and, and not make mistakes or don't die, things like that. In your case, there's billions, hopefully soon trillions of dollars in crypto on the line here in DeFi and other contracts. How do you prevent hallucinations? How do you prevent making things up? How do you prevent looking for things that aren't there? Yeah, so the we're, so we're the test machine technology is very different than what a large language model is doing. So the large language model is is trying to predict the next best thing to say, and it's there. So their objective is to just is not necessarily to to be true. It's not necessarily to be factually accurate. The objective is to have fluency and coherence. And throwing in some random facts that happen to not be true, you still achieve that objective. Like it still sounds like you're talking to a human, right? So it, it's in the way that they're trained, and so they're, they're they're has and they're working on this problem. There, there's going to be external fact checking that goes on in these models soon enough that they will crack down on the hallucinations. With test machine, what we're doing is we're saying, hey, we're going to try to break this contract. And then when we break this contract, what we do is we generate a unit test that shows you how the contract is broken. So there's no hallucination going on. We're not making anything up that we can't prove to you actually can happen to your contract. And so that's talking to our design partners right now. That's one of the things that they're really interested in is because a lot of these like tools like Slither and Mithril, they're, they're useful. They're doing static code analysis. They're, they're looking for patterns in the code that suggest a vulnerability. But you also get out like 85 pages of information. And as a developer, you wrote 300 lines of code and now you have 900 opinions from these static code analysis tools to look through and figure out what's relevant, what's not. We can be much more specific because, hey, we broke a contract. We stole all the tokens out of this wallet. And here's how we did it. Here's a unit test that implements the attack. And so there's really no chance of hallucination with, with what we're doing because it's a fundamentally different approach to it. 
it's far less general, as I mentioned before. We're doing one thing, one specific thing, and we're doing it as well as we can with modern technology. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's crazy that even I like resort to LMs being the end-all, be-all, and there's so many different models out there. They're just so famous. So are you guys, do you guys view Test Machine as a white hat agent? Like, if you're auditing a live project and it potentially exploiting code for the better of the project, will accrue tokens and send them back? Because I guess it's like the model itself or the agent has to go through all the steps. It can't just stop at the first door, right? It has to keep going and see what it can exploit, what opening one door does for the next, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you view that? Is it acting on its own to accrue tokens and attack and then you fix it and refund or what's it look like? Yeah, I would say fundamentally that question is we don't believe in theft. We believe in laws and, and we think that people should, their, as Matt mentioned earlier in the conversation, like hard-earned money is uh, being represented by a currency or an NFT. And we don't think people should be able to steal that. So that's fundamental. And yes, as we're now working with design partners that have deployed contracts, if we find vulnerabilities in something that's already been deployed, we're going to work with those projects or work with those developers to see if there are ways that we can remediate that. There are bug bounties that are out there that are currently in the R&D process at Test Machine that we may find an unknown vulnerability and, uh, and we will act accordingly with transparency with that project or with that contract, let those folks know that we did that. And so I, I would say, yes, we are definitely on the side of the, the law and, and being fully transparent. We want a secure chain and we want Eventually, we will be chain agnostic. We want all those chains to be secure. We want people to be able to deploy a smart contracts or dApps or any application on chain that's secure. It's fundamental to what we do. Matt hasn't mentioned this, but he's done a lot of work with his top-level security clearance. We have folks on the team that have top-level security clearance that believes in what we're doing. Not to go too far afield on that, but yes, Tommy, I think that we we want the community to be more secure, and we're going to work to do that. And while being a being a very profitable business. And I, I would just add to that that we can find these vulnerabilities without actually having to hack the contracts because we can we run them on our own simulators. We can destroy these contracts and it won't affect actually what's deployed. And then we can provide the information to them. It says, hey, you should probably. Yeah, I was wondering if the agent kind of goes out there and, and hacks and you guys have to refund and then send you know, yeah. functions out of fix, but it sounds like it's simulated. Yeah, yeah, we can grab the contracts. Bring it, bring it in-house here, simulate it. We can run it. We typically build this and we have simulators and we can stack simulators on top of sim- simulators. So we, can, you know, we vectorize these environments. And so we have hundreds of blockchains running on our servers at one time. And agents are just trying to destroy all these contracts. So yeah. we're scanning thousands of contracts per second for vulnerabilities. So there's entire chains that can come through test machine to find vulnerabilities in the applications that are deployed. And that's actually something that we... We didn't anticipate when we built the original roadmap back in the fall of last year, but have found that we can do that. So yeah, I, I think as Matt said, we'll, we'll definitely, we'll hopefully be giving messages to, to folks that will be very thankful that we're in touch with them. Nice. No, that, that is cool. I, I guess one other specific question is, it, it's daunting to me how many languages there are, how many different ecosystems there are. The onslaught of all the ZK technology seems or is much lauded as the end game for scalability and privacy and making sure contracts can be proven to to run as we all said they would run, which I'm not sure if that excludes or includes auditing technologies or not. But I, I love your, also your takes on, I guess, how you're keeping up with that many languages that fast. And then two, the ZK question might be a different question, but 
from my conversations with ZK folks at ETH Paris, it seems like the tech is being built in a way that it could be formally audited in somewhat of an automated fashion. And I'm not sure whether that would be bad for your business or, or good for your business. Yeah, we're designing these these test machine algorithms to be largely language agnostic. Right now, we're focused on Ethereum just because that's where most of the contracts are deployed. But we're essentially just putting a wrapper around the Solidity code or the Viper code and simulating it. And if we move to a different language, different chain uses Rust, for example, we could do the same thing. We just put a wrapper Rust contract and we can simulate it. And then we can, in, in a similar way, we can do cross-chain simulations because, as you mentioned, a lot of the vulnerabilities happen during these sort of bridge and these bridges between different chains. So we're right now we're just hyper focused on Ethereum, but we're building up the infrastructure with an idea of, of being agnostic to the, the underlying languages. Um, as for the the zero knowledge question, yeah, I think that's going to solve a, a lot of problems in terms of like formal like logical errors. But there's going to be vulnerabilities that exist that these zero knowledge approaches are just not going to be able to handle. For example, this curve finance reentrancy vulnerability that that was if you look at the logic of the contract, it was solid, but there was a problem with the compiler and there was a malfunctioning reentrancy lock. So there's zero knowledge is not going to give you insight into the problems with, with the underlying compiler, as far as I understand it. And I'm definitely not an expert in zero knowledge technology, but, but I think there's always going to be a need to have this sort of white hat kind of hacker who's approaching these smart contracts with the idea of like, how can I break this? Also, this if you're still relying on external API calls to data oracles, for example, and price manipulation issues, and that's a big problem for a lot of our design partners right now, is like well, it's their biggest vulnerability is they need external data. And if that gets manipulated in a way that you don't understand, you're out of luck. And unless everybody is communicating in this sort of zero knowledge sense, it's going to be very difficult. We might get there, but it's going to be a while before we get there. And there's still going to be billions of dollars stolen in the meantime. So that's so the way that we're constructing the platform. And I think we were pretty intentional about this early on is being language agnostic, chain agnostic, and now LLM agnostic. I think there's going to be, there already is huge demand, obviously, to utilize LLMs. And the way that we're constructing the platform, we can help Companies, projects, developers utilize ChatGPT, Bard, Claude, and then also there will be more LLMs in the future. And we have, I think, four now design partners where we're at the, at the chain level, at the blockchain level, which we didn't anticipate. And so I think being chain agnostic and language agnostic will help us in the future. And I think there are some conversations that we, the three of us, had before about moat. And I think that's another large moat for us. I think the expertise of our engineering team is there might be one or two other companies in the world that are more advanced than our team. I like those companies and we're chasing them, but, but they're not in blockchain. We feel very good about where we are in the space. We're excited about it. And we think there's a, a very long runway for what Test Machine does now and what it'll do in the future. As an investor, Andrew, they could make a bit and, and you could review it if they really want to catch up for Test Machine. <laughs> but... I, I'm scared to ask. I, I don't mean this as a slight to developers in, in the space, but like how rough is the code that's out there? Like the code that's supporting all of the transactions and apps and everything that we deal with every day in crypto, how good is it versus what we all know? Yeah, I'd say that it's it, there's a lot of variability. There's a lot of our design partners who have pretty senior developers who've been doing this for five, six years. And the code is great and it's hard for us to find serious vulnerabilities. But if you just go out on the internet and grab contracts, 
from GitHub repositories just to see what's going on. There's a lot of stuff. People are just not thinking about tons of tons of op opportunities for reentrancy vulnerabilities, for example. Even though those are relatively easy to catch, the static code analysis tools will point those out and flag them as a as a critical flaw. So yeah, it's pretty variable. I, I think the our design partners that we've been working with, their code is pretty good, and they're mostly in the DeFi space. And so it's good that they're thinking about security and, and they're getting audits done with the big firms. So their code's in pretty good shape. But it's the it's like the one-off developers that's working on their own as a consultant. They're not necessarily. They've got no skin in the game, really, and so they're not as concerned about hunting down every security vulnerability. And the companies that they're consulting for are not necessarily going to go out and pay sixty grand to get it audited. So I think there there is there is a, a lot of danger out there. The other question I had up that alley was like, how much of the code is you know public to train your models versus how much of code like does developers yeah put out there public versus private for you to use to train? There's a, a lot of code available in the public. First of all, you can grab the code off of the blockchain, whatever you want. Not as, You can definitely get the byte code because it's that's public. And you can reverse compile it into something that is not quite human readable. Then you can do an analysis on it. But we can also analyze, we don't, we can analyze the byte code on its own. So we can run that without having to have the source code, wiper source code. But that said, there are, we have lots of data sets that have probably have almost a million smart contracts that we're using to train some of our models. So there's a lot out there, but everything is technically available to grab and play with as you want. The other side is like, how good are your adversaries getting? Like the black hat hackers, the real hackers that want to steal money, are they trading their own? Are they building their own prop models? Are they getting smarter? It would be hard to think that they're just standing still. Like what are they doing? Or and it's hard to tell, but... Yeah, it's definitely hard to tell. I, I don't know of anybody building uh, another platform for penetration testing like like we're doing, at least with this particular technology. But the hackers that are, that are successfully hacking these contracts are very clever. The Euler hack, for example, it's uh, we have the test machine algorithms are working right now on on that to see if we can reproduce that hack. It's a pretty sophisticated hack that, that involved multiple contracts. So you have these multiple adversarial contracts. So the hackers are good that you know, the ones out there who know what they're doing, you know. Yeah, our adversaries are definitely standing still. They're taking advantage of the same sort of technology that Matt and his team have been going up against these guys for years. Now we're just in a different use case. And yeah, the adversaries are not slowing down. They're going to get more complex as more users come on to more chains. There will be more adversaries and more black hat hackers that are trying to steal, to steal money. And it, it is a race, I think. We like our chances, and I think the community is getting a little bit stronger and, and figuring out ways to secure not only the chains, but the code. But definitely, it's what keeps us up at night, for sure. There are countries that are coming after us and coming after our money. When I say we, it's all of us that, that are building this, this brand new ecosystem on chain, much like uh, other things that we've built. Some of our adversaries don't want that. And uh, yeah, there's definitely, you know, and, and hackers here uh, that yeah, and we, we've seen yeah, it's, it's hard to it's hard to know what technology they're developing and might be exploiting, but certainly some of these government actors. That there's this Lazarus group that was probably associated with North Korea. If you have state-sponsored, you know, blockchain hackers, I, I suspect they're building some infrastructure, they're building algorithms to scan contracts and find vulnerabilities and then exploit them. There's a lot of money to be made there, but it's hard to tell exactly what technology they might be using, if any. Have you guys ever felt the desire to? 
just be black hat hackers, to not start the company, to not have to do the podcast, to just hack, get bug bounties and call it a day? Yeah. This was this came up early on. If not by us, it came up no. people get we get this we get asked this a lot. Like, why not just steal all the money? And I'm like, there's there's some sort of like moral answer there. <laughs> yeah. I th- I think this is a it's a this is a, for me, this is a like a really interesting problem. And I really do think blockchain is the way to go forward and it's gonna solve a lot of problems, but it's not gonna happen unless it's secure. I just I stole a candy bar when I was six and I got caught. And that's the last time I tried to <laughs> Not a very good treat, and not interested in that, in that lifestyle. No, I, I, I mean one of one of the guiding things I like to invest in Delphi is projects that help to actually move our space forward. And you guys are a key example of a company that's doing that. We have a couple others that are complementary that we'll, we'll share in a bit later on. But I, I just have a couple last minute AI questions for you guys. Let's go down the dystopian path here, right? Test machines models become super smart. Matt, I know you're going to laugh at me, but let's just say Terminator level at some point. Is there any world in which it starts acting on its own accord? Because it would have the knowledge to exploit contracts and to accrue wealth to a degree that other AI models would not have that, quote, inside knowledge or expertise of doing. So it seems somewhat realistic that Test Machine could eventually become some sort of dystopian black hat entity. Is that, do you ever, does that keep you up at night or my way off? Yeah, I think with... All of now this, this, now this comes up all the time when you start talking about AI. And, and I, I, the, the way I think about AI is it's a tool. And like most tools, to, most tools that are useful are also dangerous. Think about nice, really useful in the kitchen. Also, you can stab somebody in the face with it. Fire, same thing. Nuclear weapons, nuclear energy, all of these things are useful tools, but they, they, have, they can be abused. And so I think we, we will need to have some sort of regulation around how we deploy AI models in how we understand the safety and control of these models. So yeah, somebody could, and somebody will probably put out a bot powered by something test machine-like that just goes around and starts hacking contracts. So there, there needs to be defenses against that. We need to train people to you know understand the limitations of AI, but also the dangers of AI. And I think at some point the government's going to have to get involved, and, and they already are starting to get involved in proposing regulations around these large language models, for example. Yeah, and I would say from a, just a technology standpoint, if you go back through most recent history, last couple hundred years, technologies scare people. And there's always fear around breakthrough technologies. And there's plenty of examples. And I, so far, we've done a pretty good job as a species to, like Matt said, utilize those tools to, to our benefit and mostly good. But obviously, there's plenty of examples of technology that we've used in a way that maybe is not so good. And I don't think artificial intelligence is any different than that coming from a person who has not worked in artificial intelligence for the last 15 years, but just a fresh set of eyes on this is that we can utilize this for our benefit. There will be abuses of it. And I think yeah. Matt and I completely agree on this, that we do need to work with our government and other governments and work with regulators and work with the community, the AI community, to make sure that as much as we can, as a species and as a human race, use this to the benefit of our benefit, not to let it get out of control. So there's a couple of schools of thought there, right? Like you have Sam Altman of OpenAI who wants regulation, and you could argue that he's trying to do that to form a regulatory mode because he thinks things will get too crazy. And then you have people like Stephen Wolford who argue that, hey, look, we got the craze of large language models. That's the step function. It's just going to plateau for a long time until 
if something else happens, it's not this crazy acceleration that we're all extrapolating. And humans are really bad at that. Are, are you guys of either camp? Like, do you think that it's going to get out of hand relatively quickly and, and be an issue or massively productive? Or do you think that we're in that plateau stage? I, I think we're going to be in a plateau stage at least for a few years. I think these large language models are going to get increasingly more capable and increasingly integrated into our everyday lives. And, and people are talking about this as being like the, the fourth industrial revolution, like after the agricultural and the industrial and digital revolution. Now we have this AI revolution. And I think it's definitely going to change some things, but I, I don't think it's going to be quite as dramatic as people think it's going to be, at least in the short term. Not everybody's going to lose their job. ChatGPT is amazing, but if you play with it enough, you start to see its limitations. It's not going to be like writing screenplays for Hollywood movies anytime soon. It's just... You know, <laughs> what would scare you, Matt? What What would be the thing that scares you? Like on the next 12, 24 months, is there anything that you you hope it doesn't happen? Or I, yeah. I think the worst thing we can do is is weaponize AI, like integrated into military technology. I think that's, people are talking about that. In fact, it's already been done. There's There's been autonomous drones uh, that have been released and with facial recognition, just go look for one guy and explode near him. That's going to, I mean, and that was just like, that wasn't a, even necessarily a, uh, a government sponsored thing. It's so this terrorist group just built it. You can go build it in your backyard. That, that's how commoditized this technology is now. So I think systematically weaponizing AI for military purposes is a bad idea. And you can already see rumblings of it, even in the US. I think that's not a great idea. We've all seen all those movies, how that ends. But I think from a day-to-day -day perspective, so long as we are very thoughtful about how we deploy these technologies, especially around like things like uh, healthcare and finance, where you, you want to ensure that people's privacy is protected appropriately and that their money is protected appropriately so that there is not a bot that steals all the money, burns it or something. Yeah, that's scary. So we're getting toward the end of the average person's gym sessions, so people don't get mad at me while listening. Last AI question here, I guess just on the sense of the crypto when AI overlap, there's a lot of debate on, obviously, if there is overlap, but where it is, right? For you guys, it's, it's pretty clear. You're using proprietary models to help secure the blockchain. Marcus from Propellerheads argues that AI will allow us to interact with crypto way more easily to track all the stuff away. Some people argue there'll be crypto autonomous agents to accrue wealth. There's all sorts of things. Worldcoin for civil resistance. Do you guys have a, a foundational view of AI's role within crypto, or do you think that it's tangential and around the edges? And, and there are specific use cases like test machine, but in the grand scheme of things, it's a different sector. Or do you view that there is an intertwining marriage here over the long term? I think there's definitely, they're definitely, I would say, complementary to each other. I would say that when I think of blockchain, I'll talk more broadly about blockchain and not just crypto, but blockchain is, I regard it as like a source of reliable data which is hard to come by. In the Web2 world, there's a lot of really bad data out there, and it's really easy to make up data and falsify data. Blockchain solves that problem for you and it, it, across a number of industries. So yeah, DeFi is, is a good example, but also like supply chain and logistics. We're really good about keeping track of money as a species. Like Banks know where every dollar goes. But if you start talking about physical objects, inventory, it's harder to track that. But blockchain provides a reliable way to understand where the trucks go, where the, all the all the local tracking their food source. Yeah, exactly. So you've got reliable data, but now what you need is you need to be able to scale up the ability to understand it and make use of it. And I think that's where AI is going to come in. Same thing with healthcare. Patient records can be on the blockchain. It's secure. You understand the provenance of the medical records and how they are evolving over time. 
but you need to be able to understand trends and understand you know, outbreaks and things like that. And so AI can you know, slot right into that. And then you can talk about all sorts of security. You can talk about management of data, financial data, real estate data, real estate itself. But so I think blockchain is a source of reliable data and the AI is able to scale up our understanding of that data and summarize it and make actionable recommendations to humans. So I think that's how they are going to mesh together in, in the near term. Yeah, I, I would agree. It allows for more adoption of blockchain technology because it's so robust and it's so prolific. And we talked about this a little bit ago that there, there will be more chains that are they're being built now. We're working with a couple of design partners on some really cool projects on different types of blockchain technology that security is just one use case that obviously we're in that space, but there are so many other use cases like Matt mentioned that I think it will help the end user take advantage of, so that the AI technology will help the end user take advantage of blockchain technology. Because most people, not the three of us, but most people, when they utilize technology, they don't really care how it works. They just want it to solve a problem, make their life easier. And so I think the combination of AI with blockchain does that. And I think there's obviously as a community, we've talked for the last three or four years about we want more adoption and companies are slowly adopting it and then their customers will adopt it and then more users will adopt it. And I think that's where AI, as I see it, will play a big role in allowing the average person just to utilize the technology in a way that solves a problem. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It'll provide a, like a meaningful interface to the blockchain and that nobody even needs to know about the blockchain going behind it. The blockchain solves a problem. It solves this sort of data management problem and this sort of trustless infrastructure. But AI, I think, is going to make it useful. So just to close out, Andrew, where can potential projects get in touch with you on Test Machine? I'm sure there's a bunch that are going to want to jump on, jump out the vote here. Yeah, come on to testmachine.ai. It's very simple. Testmachine.ai, you can find us. We, we have a, a cohort of design partners that we've been working with for the last 60 days on a, in a private beta. And we're going to ex- extend that cohort. Uh, we'll probably double it. We do have a waiting list, but we're actually looking for specific use cases now. One of them is if you're a, a funded DeFi project and you're about to deploy it, we'd love to talk to you. Or if you are a, a project or an exchange that has high throughput smart contracts uh, and you want to be able to detect vulnerabilities in that interaction point, we'd love to, to chat with you. So yeah, testmachine.ai. You can, you can find Matt on Twitter at Lightscaler, at Lightscaler, L-I-G-H-T-S-C-A-L-A-R. I haven't tweeted in a minute. Go you will at some point. Well, guys, thank you so much for the time. It's we're thrilled to be investing with you guys and in you guys. We definitely want to invest to help make crypto safer, more reliable, and subject to less hacks for the future. And and you guys are clearly out that out. We appreciate you guys taking us on. So thanks so much for the time. Thanks, Tommy. Appreciate it. Thanks for the investment. Thanks for all the partnership and the help you've given us. It's been it's been tremendous. Yeah.